Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning. It's a wonderful time of year. The only thing that bothers me at all is I worry about the kids on prom night getting home safely. As long as they do that, it's a great day, so all is well. I want to, There's a few announcements I want to go over before <clears throat> we tackle the message. And you need to be looking at the second chapter of Philippians, or Ephesians, starting at verse <clears throat> 11. But before I get to that, I want to make you aware that Peggy Rowland's sister, Janice Smith, died this past week. And visitation will be at Scott's funeral this afternoon from 3 to 5. And uh, to give Peggy some encouragement from the congregation and... A few other things, uh, one of them that I think you'll be interested in as well is as of Friday, <clears throat> maybe not as a result of yes, over the weekend yet, but as of Friday morning, <clears throat> the uh, effort to raise $72,000 to give Patrick and Eddie a, a salary every month for three years, uh, that goal was seventy-two thousand. We needed. We were up to sixty-nine thousand two hundred dollars. Uh, with uh, uh, so we only needed twenty-eight hundred dollars more to reach that goal. And uh, I, <clears throat> I think that's a pretty neat thing that you've done, because when they go back home, they've been gone for six years. There's they have, they have nothing to depend on except us to be able to eat and, and to make a way. Somewhere along the line, <clears throat> we're going to have to see what we can do about providing some transportation to get them from the place they live out to the, uh, to the church, uh, uh, the ground that we've purchased for the church plant. Repeat what you just heard here beginning the 5th of June. The Bible study for the men on Saturday morning will <clears throat> reconvene. One of the things as a result of Patrick and Eddie leaving, they're probably going to actually fly back. I would, it looks like now, probably July 12th or 13th, they would depart from Columbus and head back to Uganda. That's the way it looks right now. Um, so as a result of that, because both of those guys teach for us in the galaxy, we're going to need a couple of other teachers to replace them. That's the galaxy are grades four, five, and six. So if there's some men or, and women who want to teach and who can be uh, committed to that, we'd really appreciate it. After the finish the sermon this morning, we're going to sing a chorus. And I hope that you'll join in with it because it, it reaffirms what the message is all about. And it's called, uh, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love. What we're going to be teaching, I need to get back to that uh, galaxy thing, for the next eight weeks, we're going to be teaching our young boys and girls about the Bible. Stuff that we, when we grew up in church, we all, because of church camp, because of vacation Bible school, because of Sunday school, and because of what our parents did at home, and, and we had some contests about it, we learned the basics of the Bible. There were five-finger exercises. Some of them were ten, but the five one is easy. You start with a five. And when you, the teacher would hold up the hand five, you, as a group, would say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A thumb went down, you had four left. You said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two, Old Testament, New Testament, one, the living God. So, and, and we had exercises like that all of the time. And believe it or not, when you get my age, I'm 83, you remember most of what you were taught. So don't think that it isn't important. It really, truly is. I can remember my mind is filled with useless trivia that I have developed through the years. One of them, for instance, when I was, I started milking three cows morning and night when I was nine years old. 
Daddy had a little Crosley radio that played in the barn to give the old cows some uh, calmness while we milked them. And every morning on WLW, the same song was sung by a fellow by the name of Lazy Jim Day. Lazy Jim Day would bring, and he would set the news for the day to rhyme for that, for that period of time he was on the radio. And he introduced his program the same way every morning. I can remember it as though it was five minutes ago. It went, now listen, everybody. He sang it. Here comes the, here comes the singing news with a little music to chase away your blues. Now this news is the truth, and every word says I, and I'll bet you 30 cents you can't catch me in a lie. Now that took place when I was nine years old. And, and you, so don't, don't get in your head that what we teach these young ones isn't important. They will remember it. Make it simple, make it biblical, and, and, and repetition is the key to learning. The reason I remember that is it was played every morning seven days a week on WLW in Cincinnati. Now, the other thing I need to tell you is that the devotionals for June, July, and August are on the table. When you leave, be sure and take one with you. Uh, and, and I hope that, that you use it. Now, I think that that's all I had written down here for the old guys here. So let's now look at the text that we're... And the whole book of Ephesians is about one subject, just one. But he spends six chapters trying to make it clear to people. It is the unity of the body of Christ. The one thing that the church has messed up through the years, worse than you couldn't imagine, when Jesus instituted the church on the day of Pentecost, never could have imagined the division that's in the body of Christ today. And yet he spent all of this time, and Jesus, much of his preaching was for the same reason. And you'll see the, the miracle of uniting Jew and Gentile into one body called the church. And this is what this text is all about. And the rest of the book of Ephesians is too. How do you unite Christian people? We're going to talk about that some in just a minute. But the scripture starts off this way. I better take a snort first. He starts off with the word, therefore. Whenever the apostle Paul used the word, therefore, he was saying, sit up and at least listen with one ear, because what I'm getting ready to say is of extreme importance. He says, therefore, remembering that formally, and by the way, the Ephesian church was essentially non-Jewish. They were essentially Gentiles. So he's going to be talking to people who didn't have any knowledge of the Old Testament background and all that God had promised Israel through the Old Testament. So he's addressing these Gentiles who had come to accept Jesus, and he says it this way, Remember that formally you who are Gentiles by birth whom the Jews call the uncircumcised, by those who call, who call themselves the circumcision, which was done, by the way, to the body by the hands of men. And the, and the New Testament will ultimately teach that the physical circumcision is of no value spiritually at all. It's the circumcision of the heart that makes the difference between the lost and the saved. Remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. There was Israel, there were the Gentiles. That includes everybody. You're either Jew or non-Jew. That's all of creation. And, formal, and foreigners to the covenants. The covenant, the word covenant, testament, and will is all the same word in the Bible. The Old Testament, the old will of God, the old covenant. And there were many covenants, probably one that's best known as the one that was made with Abraham. But the Old Covenant is the Old Testament. The New Covenant is the New Testament. Same meaning. And you were without hope, without God in the world. That was the status of the Gentiles at the time Christ came. But now, in Christ Jesus, this is the Apostle Paul's favorite term, 
in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The idea here is that as you and I, when we're saved and we mature in our faith, we become more like Jesus. Now, if you don't become more like Jesus, you're not maturing. You're just getting older. And so, and, and how, do, how do you qualify? How do you, how do you tell whether you're becoming more like Jesus? If you go to the Galatians, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit that's listed there, love, joy, meekness, gentleness, and, and he lists them all. These are character qualities of Jesus. So when we develop the character qualities of Jesus, instead of seeing us, they see Christ in us. And that's the ultimate goal of the Christian. For me to live, the Apostle Paul said, is Christ. And to die is gain. Why? Because I'll go actually go be with him. So he says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far away, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That was the price that was paid for the unity of the body of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Now, what, what, what is this word peace? That It's translated in English, peace. In Greek, it's arene, where we get our English name, Irene. There's a song about that, but I don't have time to get into it. Because there's a, as I said, my head is filled with useless trivia, and that's just more of it. He is our peace. The, the, uh, the Hebrew word that you see if you to visit Israel, on every hotel door, on every door of every Jew living in Israel, there's a little piece of wood with some scribbling on it that's actually in Hebrew. It's the word shalom. Shalom is the same as peace. It literally means, may the very best that can happen to you happen. And they never say it once. It's always shalom, shalom. But it's the same word and the same meaning in the Greek as peace or arene from where we get our word. So it, it indicates if there's peace being made, it means that beforehand there was war. There was division. There was hatred. And that's exactly what existed between the Jew and primarily among the Jews and the Gentiles. There was real hatred. Actually, that wasn't what the Old Testament taught. The Old Testament taught that God loved everybody. But the Jews, the, the rabbis, made commentaries. And in those commentaries, it said that Gentiles were created by God to stoke the fires of hell. So you can see they didn't get along too good. Jesus spent a lot of time explaining how awful that was. That's the, that was the meaning behind the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Here's a guy who the Jews hated from Samaria because these were people who had been imported from other countries when Samaria was conquered, and the, and the Jewish people there were transported off to another nation so they couldn't start a war. Jesus was saying, hey, guys, you got this wrong. You got it wrong. And he spent a lot of time talking about the one, of the, one of the stories, parables, that Jesus told that you probably know pretty well is the it's called the parable of the prodigal son, but that wasn't the meaning behind it at all. That's, that's what we've named it and stuck it in the Bible man-made. It's all about a loving father who loved both the Jew who was represented in the older brother and the prodigal who was represented the, the Gentiles as a younger brother. And God welcomed them all even the one the Jews didn't like. So it was, a, it, was a real, it was a real problem that God had to address through the sending of his Messiah into the world. He said, for he himself is our peace. Our peace is Christ. Why? Okay, the Gentile knows the only way he can get to heaven is by loving Jesus. The Jew realizes that in spite of his religious heritage, his only hope of heaven 
is by loving Jesus. So the two who didn't like each other love the same person and therefore come together and he is our peace. That's what he's trying to tell us. Through the years, we've, re we've really messed up some of that stuff we'll talk about in a little bit. For It says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier in between the dividing wall of hostility. And it really was there. They, there was hatred there. So by abolishing in his flesh, meaning Jesus, the law with its commandments and its regulations. He's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the rules that the commentators made and added to the Old Testament. And there were books of them. Just whole big, big commentaries. And, uh, and it was, it, for instance, just a quick illustration. The Old Testament taught that you shouldn't labor on the Sabbath day. So then the commentator said, okay, so what, what is work? How do you define work? Then they would say, okay, how far can you walk on the Sabbath before it becomes work? They actually determined that, and then the, the Jewish families would go take a stake and put in the ground that far on the road that they would walk from their house, and they couldn't go beyond that on the Sabbath. And then Jesus, he was all the time throwing them curves. He would say, okay, how about if your animal, your ox was in the ditch, what do you do about him? Do you say, let the sucker lay? Or do you go do what is necessary to give him the help to get him out of the ditch so he can live his life? All that did was aggravate the Jews because they had gotten to the place where they believed they had everything just exactly right. And if you became like them, you'd be okay. And that arrogance Jesus addressed time and time again. It was primarily the work of just a minority. There were only about 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day. Just a handful of people compared to the whole population of Israel. But they had unbelievable about, amount of influence. And it's these rules and regulations that separated people and created hostility and meanness toward each other. We still have some of that within the church. You know, and we'll talk about that, as I said a little bit. His purpose, meaning God, was to create in himself one new man out of two. Okay, we've got Gentiles who worship pagans. Now, he was primarily referring to their religion as worshiping at the temple of the goddess Diana or Aphrodite, if you want to, if you want to be fancy. Same thing. And the Jews then had their temple in Jerusalem. So both of them had their temples. But he's going to address that and, 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 and call their hand. He said, look, we have to get rid of those and have one temple. What's that temple going to be? He's going to address that. Okay, he says, so we got two parties here, Jew, Gentile, and we want to create one, one, one party. What's that going to be? And, and when we do that, and both agree to, to joining this one party, we've made peace between them. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. For you see, the Gentile had to accept what Jesus did on the cross as payment for their sins. So did the Jew. Because in the Old Testament, no one went straight to heaven. They went to uh, a holding place there until Christ died on the cross. And when he ascended into, and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, he took the Old Testament Jewish faithful with him, the Bible says. And say, when he died on the cross, he put to death the hostility that existed. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentile, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jew. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So the Holy Spirit then is given to those who accept Jesus. Because if you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. So the Jew has to be converted and, to Christ and accept the Holy Spirit. The Gentile has to be converted, come to Christ, and receive the Holy Spirit. Now then, both who were hostile with each other have received 
the same Holy Spirit and belong to the same God-given organization. It's called the church. The church. The ecclesia is the Greek word where we get our word ecclesiastical. So, consequently, now this, in, this is in verse 19, and this is exactly the same as saying, therefore. Now, I've told you all before where that came from. There was an old Methodist preacher that had a great big church down in Atlanta, Georgia. His name was Dr. Allen. And I met Dr. Allen at a, um, at a church conference in Detroit. And it, there was a bunch of young preachers there. I was still in my 20s. And I lived in, in, in Illinois, and I lived on the county line. There's Iroquois County here and then Hoopston over here. And I had two telephones and da-da-da-da-da, and then one of them was ringing all the time. And, I, and he was saying, do you have questions? I said, Dr. Allen, what do you do? I don't have a secretary. It's a small church, just a couple hundred people. And, and, uh, and I've got two telephones, and one of those suckers are ringing all them. And he looked at me, and he said, young man, how old are you? I told him 20-something. I don't remember what it was. And he said, and how much education do you have? I said, well, I've got Bible college and... and uh, in divinity school he said and you haven't learned yet that if you just leave that thing alone it'll quit directly <laughs> and he said that because a whole lot of people and then after I got out from under the chair I listened to the rest of it but, and he was the guy who would always say and he had a real heavy southern accent therefore and he was about this big around and about 6'3 he looked like a bean pole but he had a real deep bass voice how that came from Anyway, he was the therefore that, that, that sticks in my mind, more useless trivia. So, consequently, or therefore, you're no longer talking to the Gentiles, foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household. Now, look what he's doing here. He's using uh, temples. He's using buildings of all kinds. He's using the family relationship. He's using all of these things to appeal to the people that you all belong to the same family. You all belong to the same everything because you belong to Christ. He bought you, paid for you, and there's only one Christ. He keeps pushing on that. Built on the foundation, he said, of the apostles and the prophets. That word prophet could just be preacher. With Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Now, we're back to the temple again. Now he's going to define, okay, the, the temple on the, on the Acropolis in Ephesus. The temple of Aphrodite. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Then you have the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They both literally just were attached to the Gentiles to Aphrodite, the Jews to the temple in Jerusalem. And, and Paul is going to say, and neither one of them are worth a hoot. Because God has done away with buildings. And in, this is verse 22, and in him, you too are being built together, become the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, what is the temple of God? It's you. It is you and me. Okay? Hey, Grandpa, do your thing. <laughs> That's all right. Good-looking guy. All right. Now, th th this is the text that gives us the uh, discussion about Jew and Gentile. You see, in the Old Testament, God never intended that that animosity exists between Jew and Gentile. Well, the, the book of Ruth is included in your Bible just to show you that that was wrong. Ruth was a Moabite princess who married a Jewish landlord. And, he beca and she became part of the lineage of Christ. You, there, there are several different ones. As I said, the, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, all of which was to point out that God was the God of everybody. And they were accepted as such. So, 
we want to then talk just for a little bit here before we hang it up. Next few minutes. I want to talk about Christian unity. Because you and I have never known real Christian unity. The closest that I ever saw to it was in the, uh, in the rallies or the crusades of Billy Graham. I, I got to attend some of the stuff that had to do with that when he had one in Cincinnati. Then all the preachers or representatives from churches were invited to Standard Publishing Company out on Hamilton Road. And we were to be taught, and there were Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians, and, and all of the churches that believed the Bible were represented there, or many of them were, not all of them, but many of them were. Now, I was used to that. Because I grew up in the metropolitan area of Germantown, Kentucky. And Germantown, Kentucky, believe it or not, was a town that the wind was strong to your back. You could spit over. But it was located on the county line between Mason County and Bracken County. There was division there. And there were four churches. There was the Christian church where I grew up, right down the same street was the Baptist church where a lot of our friends worshiped. And just in the real bad bend in the road there on number 10 highway that goes through it was the Methodist church. And then way out on the west side, just as you leave town, there were a few houses there where black people lived. And they had a small church. They never had a preacher. But they came together faithfully. And whenever we had a revival, as we did every August, those folks were invited to come, but they would always sit quietly. And, and as I got older and, uh, and was exposed more to black people you know, on an intimate basis, you know, they had things in their church that I wish we had. And, and part of it was there was some give and chain, give and take among the preacher and the folks. I was a youth minister in Danville, Illinois, and there was a, a black church there called the College Street Church of Christ. And their preacher was gone, and my boss sent me over there to preach. And I was just giving them the best I had, you know. And, and finally, one old brother stood up and said, Brother Scott, we really like what you're saying, but you ain't giving us our, our chance to talk. <laughs> And I really had never been through that before, and I, I was getting my lesson. And, uh, and, and so he said, you, you say a sentence or two and then give us a chance. And, and so I tried to, I didn't do very well, to be honest with you, but I gave it a shot anyway. But you know what? Whenever Ralph or Rosanda or some of the folks with some pigment in their skin raise a little amen or what we say, I kind of like that, don't you, really? A little racket every once in a while is good for us because with the lights here, I can't see whether you're awake or not, and that helps me to know that you're at least awake. Well, that was during the time of segregation because those folks had to drive all the way to Maysville to Fee High School, an all-black uh, school there. We've made some real headway, but we've got a ways to go. And it really bothers me when, uh, when that, that hostility that the politicians create all the time on purpose. We cannot buy into that. We can't buy into that. Our peace, regardless of what, how much pigment you got in your skin, the slant of your eyes, I, none of that matters. We are one in Christ Jesus or we're lost. That's the way the Bible makes it abundantly clear. So how do we, cre how do we go about creating unity? It's been tried. It's been tried. Churches here in Salwood County, give you an illustration. There are free will Baptist churches here. And then there's First Christian downtown. First Christian church and, and the free will Baptist years ago attempted to come together. They had meetings and they had prayer meetings. They had efforts. The result of that effort to unite was they just created another church 
it was called the Christian Baptist. So here in the county, there are Christian Baptists, there are free will Baptists, and, there are, and there's the Christian church. So their effort to unite actually created more division. And that has been, unfortunately, the history of the church, primarily because this is an indictment on all of us. It just means we don't love Jesus enough to swallow our pride and to accept people where they are, as they are, and treat them the way I'd want to be treated in a similar situation. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. That's what it's all about. And, and so we need, how are we going to fix that? Well, there were some people, this goes clear back to the, to the Reformation area back in the 14 and 1500s. They came up with some really neat efforts because they were trying to do the same thing. They didn't do very well, but they tried. They came up with this saying on, for, on uh, unity. They said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In other words, you're free to think what you want to in non-essentials. But in all things, love. In essential, and that argument then develops, and, and it's a legitimate discussion that should have what is essential and what isn't. But that can, that can be solved if we love one another. That's the big issue here. Unity is important, and we have a tendency to justify the division. I'm talking about denominations in particular. There are hundreds of them. And, uh, and we have a tendency to just accept that as being all right. Well, it isn't all right. Not according to the Bible. In the 17th chapter of the book of John, Jesus prayed the following. Lord, that they might be one as you and I are one. They might be one as you and I are one. And he repeats that for his own disciples and then for us. He said, in, in the latter part of the 17th chapter, he talks about us, those who are coming along later, that they might be one. And there's, it just hasn't worked out very well. And divisiveness, the division in the body of Christ, is soundly and firmly, really strongly condemned in the 16th chapter of the book of Romans. It reads this way, starting at verse 17. I urge you, brethren, this is the Apostle Paul talking, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned from me. He says, keep away from them. So this is a strong indictment of the division that we have. You know, as I said, in our little town, we had four churches. There weren't enough people there to start a fight in a phone booth, but we still had that division among the churches. Because you see, and until the, about the fifth century, there weren't, there was only one church. And then there was a guy by the name of Augustine, a brilliant guy, a horrible sinner as a young man. His mother, Monica, pray, prayed for him, and he was finally converted. And he came up with a, a, a lot of the teaching that is, day, that is today still felt in the church. And uh, he was considered one of the church fathers. And the whole concept of Calvinism and, and, uh, and, and, and the, that stuff that divides between the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Christian church, so on and so forth, was put together by a man named Augustine, uh, who was in the four and five hundreds after the, after the death of Christ. And this created real division in the church. And Calvin and Martin Luther were both what we call Augustinian monks before they finally left the Catholic church and got married. And then there's the, then there's the issue of communion. The Catholic Church has always, and the, uh, and the Orthodox Church has always, rightly so, had communion every Sunday. They've always done that. But during the Reformation period, the animosity was so strong that the Protestants refused to have it every Sunday because it was too much like the Catholics. They didn't ask themselves what did the Bible teach and what did Jesus want us to do? Because in Acts 2.42, it makes it pretty clear. 
So we continue to have communion. But there's even a problem there. Many churches have what's called closed communion. The difference between our church as a Christian church in, in, in the metropolitan area of Germantown and the, the Baptist church down the street, both of them believe the Bible. The Methodist church, there was no question about them believing and preaching the Bible. It was these man-made things that had been brought in, just like the Jews had their commentaries. Each of us had the same thing. And sometimes those traditions are held to stronger than the Bible. And it's sad, but it, that's really true. And so, and, and my parents were good friends with some other school teachers who went to the Baptist church, Denver and Mildred King, and they were invited there to hear somebody for something. And it was their communion Sunday because they didn't have communion every Sunday. And at the end of the service, the preacher kindly but true said, if you're not members of First Baptist Church, Germantown, Kentucky, you're free to go now because this is communion church Sunday and, and our our guidelines say that we can only serve communion to those who belong to this church. So you see, we automatically, even in the thing that was created by the Lord to help Christians be one in Christ, what's communion for? It's for the purpose of examining yourself, looking at yourself to see. And if you had animosity toward any of your brother, you shouldn't take communion until you go and reconcile to them. So it was set up for the purpose of bringing unity in the body of Christ. It's not something where you can pop a, and, and go on your way. It was meant for reflection for the purpose of maintaining unity in the church. So we have all those divisions. And the very thing that the Lord put together to bring unity has been used to divide us. And then their names. You know, Martin Luther never intended to start a church. He just wanted to reform the Catholic Church. He didn't, he didn't want to start the Lutheran Church. That just happened. Calvin, I don't know about him. He's kind of a different breed of cat. He's the father of, of the uh, Reformed churches and the Presbyterian Church because the Presbyterian Church came out of Scotland. And what happened was there, the leader was sent, he, he went to Geneva, Switzerland, studied, under, his name was John Knox, studied under Calvin, then came back to Scotland and started the Presbyterian Church. That's how that started. It's easy to figure. It's all written down in church history. So you have the Baptists, the Methodists, who were given that name because they developed. They were they were saying that the Episcopal Church was didn't believe anything anymore. You couldn't tell the difference between an Episcopalian and a sinner, and so they said there needs to be some holiness among the people. And so they developed a one two three method here, and so they were called Methodist of becoming more holy, so that they there would be a, an obvious difference in the life of the. And, and holiness then just went crazy. Instead of, of people being godly, they said, well, it's how, how, how primarily how the women dress. They're the problem anyway because they created all that problem in the Garden of Eden. See? So, so they always blame the women anyway. So they, they, they say, woman, you, you, you have to wear a dress that drags the ground. And you have to have hair that's piled up, looks like a bird's nest. You have, and so they said it was the outward appearance that made you holy. And the Bible says it's the inward person that makes the difference. Women have always got the short end of that dress stick. Now, I don't think you ought to come out with a miniskirt on. Actually, that's the only person I ever sent home from church. Our church wasn't very old. We were renting the Seventh-day Adventist building up on 27th Street. And this little girl who lives over here where Sinead Harris lives now, her daddy was a military and, and her mother didn't go to church. So, but she was coming and she had on a miniskirt. And shall I say that she had premium parts? She was a pretty little girl and, and had a classy chassis. And so she was sitting on the front row of the... And when she sat down, you could see her underwear. So I said to my wife, it's awful hard to preach when you're looking at a good-looking girl's underwear. 
this, some, and, and I can't be the only one who thinks that way. So Alice Kay sat down with her. She went home and put on her blue jeans and came back, and everything was fine. That's the only one that turned out pretty good, I thought. And so I, I, I think the women have always gotten a short end of the stick. So we need to understand that our unity is in Christ, and it, it's determined by how much we love him is how much we're willing to put up with each other's frailties. All of us have faults. And we, if we get to know each other pretty well, you're going to see those faults. And sometimes you'll be aggravated by them. But we overlook them and forgive them because how we treat each other directly affects the lost person coming to Christ. In that 17th chapter of John that I was telling you about, that's exactly what he said. In order, we need to be one in Christ in order that the world may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that means sometimes you have to bite your tongue pretty hard. But if someone is, has accepted Jesus, we're all in the same family. We've been adopted by the same God. We've been saved by the same blood of Jesus. We're one in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. Then what, what else divides us? Well, the early people said who were pushing this thing, and I've I got to hurry because uh, most of you are pretty sleepy from being up all night with your kids and grandkids. Uh, they came up with another saying that I think is, is helpful. It's entitled, No Creed But Christ. You see, creed, nearly all of these organizations have a, a man-made creed that they use in addition to the Bible. Now, at the time most of those came into existence, they had a good reason for being. Because for many, many years, when my mother said in Kentucky, when she was a little girl, majority of the people in Bracken County, Kentucky, could not read and write. And so a creed that they could memorize quickly because they couldn't read the Bible was helpful and well-intended. But almost everybody now can read the Bible. We don't need creeds because creeds are what justify the Methodists have their creed. The Baptists have their statement of faith. The, the uh, uh, Presbyterians use the Apostles' Creed. On and on and on and on. In fact... There is a whole book written by a guy named Philip Shaft, who was a church historian, and it's entitled The Creeds of Christendom. There's dozens of them. And each one of them came into existence to justify that group as opposed to the rest of them, just like names. The name Baptist separates us from the Presbyterian. The Presbyterian separates us from the word, from the... And so, but names are important because they are to designate who we are as opposed to someone else. That's why you're identified. And so what they've done, so we need a name that everybody can accept. What is that name? When you accept Christ, you become a Christian. And that's all you need to be. Just a Christian. You may or may not know that grammatically the I-A-N ending is the same as an apostrophe S. It indicates possession. You belong to Christ. And all of us, every Presbyterian I ever talked to is a Christian, claims to be a Christian. I'm a Christian Presbyterian. I'm a Methodist Christian. I'm a Catholic Christian. Do away with all of that and just be comfortable with one family of God and let's all just be Christians. And accept and love one another as such with one source of authority, the Bible. We don't need creeds. We don't need anything man-made. The Bible is the living word of the living God. And that's all we need. So, and, they, and the old guys on the frontier, when they were trying to do some of this stuff with the Christians and the Baptists and so on and so forth, came up with an interesting statement. They said, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we're silent. The church just needs one source of authority. Because in the church today, the, you know, there are many sources of authority. 
in the Catholic and the Orthodox churches, they have a man that's the final source of authority. For instance, they have tradition, they have dogma, they have church law, they have the Bible. The Catholic Bible is the same as ours. It's not that, if I'm talking to a Catholic family somewhere, I use a Catholic Bible. Same. But if it makes them comfortable, that's all right with me. The Bible is the Bible. It's the Word of God. So we just need one authority, and that authority is God himself through his revealed word. That's the final authority. Now, terminology is important, and I, I've got two whole minutes here. And by the way, you singers, you go, get, get on up here so we can save time. We're going to sing a chorus before we go home. Are you here somewhere? Yep, there they are. Okay, here, here's what I want to point out to you. The Apostle Paul is going to say here in this Corinthian letter, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in and through you all. He prays for and urges the unity of the faith. And, and, and we have to deal with some words. Baptism is a, is a problem. There was only immersion because the Greek word baptizo in the Greek form, of, in the verb form, or baptisma in the uh, noun form, means to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. But because of some circumstances, the, the church changed all that. Even the Catholic Bible has a footnote in Romans 6, 4 that says this, ancient, this doubtless refers to the ancient mode of baptism by immersion. Everybody accepts that. So you need to understand there are words and the original language helps. Patrick and Eddie will probably be one of the few people in all of Uganda who are proficient in both Greek and Hebrew when they go home. That's significant because it helps clarify a lot of the things that people don't understand. And the old guy that taught them will be here for their ordination. He only, he only reads and speaks 11 languages. People like that disgust me, but, but, but I love him. But anyway, that, that's important that we understand the Greek that it was originally written in if it helps to clarify issues so that we can all believe the same thing and be one in Christ. I've dreamed, I'll never live to see it, but I've dreamed of being able to see the churches realize that we need each other and we need to love each other in order to honor Christ, to come together down in the football field or wherever and have a giant worship service together that just lifts up the whole city of, of Portsmouth before the Lord and ask him to bless us because we sure need it. We need to be one in Christ. And folks, don't be surprised. If the Lord allows the church to come under severe persecution so that we will realize what the old guy who runs Southern Baptist Seminary, I was in a meeting with him not long ago, and he said, if we don't learn to live together, we'll die separately. We need to be one in Christ Jesus and love each other that way. And this little song testifies to my sermon. If you'll allow him to teach it to you if you don't already know it throw it up there let me get out of the way y'all stand up with us
Father, we ask you to fill our hearts with your presence. Give us the capacity to love each other and, when necessary, forgive each other the way you've forgiven us. Help us, Father, to assume the attitude that we're not the only Christians. We're just Christians. And we will love those who love you and treat them the way that we'd want to be treated if we were they. Bless our church, Father. Help us to work hard at becoming loving brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask for your continued blessing. Go with us as we depart this building. Use us, Father, to honor your name. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.